It's the Thursday before Memorial Day. We can't wait for the end of this week. But first, we have to talk about a bunch of news. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. We got a bunch of news to talk about. We're going to dive straight in with one of our favorite people in Ohio, Jim Jordan. Lisa, how is he going to respond to the January 6th committee's demand that he appear and tell what he knows? Well, we don't know yet whether he's going to appear for a deposition, which is set for tomorrow. But on Wednesday, he sent a letter to the select committee to investigate the January 6th riot and a letter to Chair Benny Thompson. And he had the usual obfuscations. But I think the biggest one is that he's demanding that the committee turn over all documents and other materials that reference him because he feels like committee members have altered non-public information and have publicly misrepresented presented the information that has gone out. He also questioned the validity of the committee itself. He says it, quote, seeks to use its authority for improper motives and self-aggrandizement of its members. And then he says, I have no relevant relevant information to advance any legitimate legislative purpose. And he even questioned the constitutionality of the extraordinary claim that the committee can compel testimony from other Congress members. And he says it's, you know, a dangerous implied power and yada, yada, yada. He's so full of baloney. And there was an effort to overthrow the government of the United States sparked by the sitting president. And if he has no part of it, if he's done nothing wrong, why not just sit down with his colleagues and say what he knows? He's doing everything he can to avoid being held to account. And as Sabrina Eaton has reported, he should be held to account. He was in constant communication with Donald Trump that day, and he conspired with Donald Trump to try and get Mike Pence to reject the whole process illegally. He's got stuff that he needs to talk about, and he's doing everything he can to avoid it. It's very cowardly, or maybe he's just trying to protect himself from getting charged with something. Yeah, it feels like a desperate Hail Mary pass to me. And as I said, you know, he's got to say today whether he's going to appear before the committee tomorrow. I mean, you know, that's the deadline here. But And we also know on January 5th, he talked to White House aide Mark, or White Chief of Staff, is Mark Meadows. They talked about, you know, election protest strategy. So these are things we already know. Well, it, it's the Republican trope, right? If you haven't done anything wrong, what do you have to be afraid of? So if you haven't done anything wrong, sit down with your colleagues, tell them what you know, and move on. It's You cannot... You cannot argue that the Congress should not investigate what happened that day. That was one of the most terrifying days in American history. We came within a hair's breadth of losing our government. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, as I've said before, using the Hamilton quote, he was in the room where it happened. I mean, so he <laughs> he knows. And it and you got to wonder what has is not public that they know the committee knows about Jordan. It's got to be pretty damning at this point. I can't wait for these hearings. I think these are going to be as riveting as the Watergate hearings were. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is there any meaning in the Ohio Supreme Court's opinion Wednesday that the latest legislative maps that they previously said were invalid are still invalid? Laura? Yeah, unfortunately, this is not looking good for Ohioans because there's no real way to enforce this ruling. 
And they basically said, hey, this is still invalid. You've given this to us about twice before with a slight difference in the first time. And no, you can't do this. And they want um, them to come back with a new map, I believe, June Third, but that's too late because the federal court has already set a May 28th deadline for the commission and the Supreme Court to agree on legislative districts for the next four years. And if they failed to do that, the judges said they were going to order a primary election on August 2nd using the rejected map. So it really does feel like the Republicans played this game where they just strung everything out. They waited until the very last minute. They broke deadlines. And they won. I mean, they got the map. I mean, it's not as bad as the original map. To be fair, it's about 54-46 split. But they could win upwards of 70 seats in a in a Republican year, I guess. So it's not fair. The, the Supreme Court has said it's not fair, but that doesn't matter. Well, the other thing that's happened here, and this is probably the most long-lasting effect, is the Supreme Court's been emasculated. The governor of Ohio, the auditor or the auditor of Ohio, the secretary of state, Ohio, the House speaker, the Senate president have all conspired to turn the weight of balance of power in favor of the legislative and executive branch. They're refusing to do what the Supreme Court says and showing that the Supreme Court is powerless to exert its will. So they're not equal branches of government because the other two are doing whatever they damn well please. And the Supreme Court is completely neutered here. That's yeah. that's really dangerous. When you have neutralized the power of the courts, you're you're in a danger of having a, a, an aut- a dictatorship, autocracy. This yeah. is bad news. Yeah, I don't quite understand why they denied the motions from the map critics to order these seven members of the redistricting committee to explain why they should not be held in contempt of court. Because I believe they made them do that once already, right? Uh, I, they've done it twice already. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. they didn't hold them in contempt. They just right, did nothing. Exactly. I mean, the, the sad thing is, is Maureen O'Connor's try the chief justice has tried to make this work. But in the end, the legacy is the court is busted. What's amazing about that is Mike DeWine's doing that to his son. You know, as we've said, Pat DeWine is on the Supreme Court, completely in the wrong by ruling on a case involving his father. He's in the minority. And and what Mike DeWine is doing is weakening the power of his son's chair. Well, I mean, it's not just his son, right? It's This is a lasting legacy. And Maureen O'Connor, who's going to be done at the end of this year, which is probably what the Republicans were waiting for, in her opinion, wrote that the redistricting commission, quote, engaged in a stunning rebuke of the rule of law by resubmitting the plan that the court already said was unconstitutional. And they're right. The entire time, the Republicans just thumbed their nose and said, we can do whatever we want. And I would actually argue with you a little bit, Chris, because I don't think the executive branch had a whole lot of sway here i think it was completely kowtowing to the legislators to bob um to cup and huffman or as lisa likes to call them cupman <laughs> two <laughs> old white guys from lima who have held this state and made them do whatever they want yeah you're right i mean mike mike dewine could have made a difference and yes, instead he but he's too scared, to them completely. he was too scared of the primary challenge from Renacy and and of the legislators making him look even weaker by overturning everything he did with coronavirus, right? Like ever since they stopped his executive orders, he's kind of backed off and just been like, okay, guys, whatever you want. 
But does this mean others will just say, yeah, okay, Supreme Court ruled, I'm not listening. I mean, the whole the whole balance of power on the coronavirus, you know, the legislature passed laws that are probably unconstitutional to take away some of the governor's power. If that went to the Supreme Court and the legislators didn't like what they ruled, they could just ignore it. Can anybody just ignore the Supreme Court? This is what they've done. They're public servants, and they should be supporting the constitutional power of that third branch of government. And what they've done is cut the legs off of it. And that has ramifications that will be long-lasting. Uh, yeah. Very, very sad. And the, their entire goal this time has been, you know, it's been to preserve the party, to give the party as much power as possible and just basically screw the people. And I, I know this is getting on my soapbox a little bit, and I'm sorry, but if you care about gun laws and if you care about abortion in Ohio, you should care about redistricting because this is what gives you know, the supermajority to the Republicans. The other thing that's clear is that the new deadline for doing the maps for the 2024 election, the, the Republicans will just run out the string till the end of the year, wait till Maureen O'Connor's gone, right. hope Sharon Kennedy, who's a complete shill for the Republican Party, I mean, she's got conflicts of interest, wins that election if Jennifer Bruner does not. And then they'll just count on her to put her thumb on the scale and we'll have gerrymandering for the next 10 years. So that, that deadline... Based on the Supreme Court's impotence here, that deadline is meaningless. We have gerrymandering in Ohio, and we're going to for the, for the foreseeable future. You're listening yeah. to Today in Ohio. How did Steve Dettelbach do in his confirmation hearing to become the head of the United States ATF? Courtney, it was his day in the sun, and it came a day after a mass shooting in Texas, which put a whole different filter on the day. Yeah, what timing for this confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, Dettelbach's the former U.S. Attorney for Northern Ohio. He's Biden's pick to lead the ATF. But the ATF's been leaderless for the better part of a decade, and, and confirmations haven't happened because of how politicized this gun discussion is in our country. So, of course, that cast a long shadow on his appearance yesterday. But it seems like, like Dettelbach said everything he was supposed to say as a Democratic nominee to this post, right? So, so you know, he said he, 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 he pledged to enforce gun laws passed by Congress, and he said, quote, he would never let politics in any way influence his action as ATF director. So you would expect someone in this position to kind of take that kind of tack, right? And, and as expected, high-ranking Republicans on the committee – Raise the questions we expected him to. Tom Cotton of Arkansas, you know, harkened back to Dettelbach's 2018 run for Ohio AG when he called for a ban on so-called assault weapons. So, of course, the members kind of launched into that. They wanted Dettelbach to define what he sees as an assault weapon. And, and Dettelbach, you know, gave the middle-of-the-road answer. He said it'd be Congress's job to define what that means if they take up, you know, assault weapons bans or any action there and he said ATF would be a partner provide data to help Congress make that kind of decision and also you know Chuck Grassley the, the ranking GOP member on the committee went into he wanted Dettelbach to define what rogue gun dealers mean you know that's wrapped up in a recent Biden proposal um, to, to kind of crack down on, on so-called rogue gun dealers and and Dettelbach kind of gave the middle-of-the-road response there, too. He said he'd, he'd look for dealers who intentionally, repeatedly violate laws, and he'd work to hear all perspectives to be a fair regulator, including those of the gun industry. 
Yeah, Steve's Steve's a very smart guy, and he he threaded the needle. He basically mm-hmm. said, "I'm not a policymaker here. This job is not to make policy. Your job is to make policy. My job is to carry it out, working with our partners to enforce the law, and that's what I would do. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to say what I think should happen with assault weapons. That's your job now." They they should be saying, let's get rid of assault weapons. Seems like the simplest step we could take to stop the massacres. All these wackos that are Yeah, and Democratic. People. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Cut out right there. Sorry. Um, yeah, no, no. The Democratic senators use the platform, especially given the news over the last two weeks with these mass killings, to really push for, for that ban. But it doesn't look like there's necessarily a path forward for Congress to do that at the moment. <laughs> Which is amazing. That That is mm. the weapon that is allowing for the mass slaughter. If the, these guys had handguns, it would be much harder to do what they're doing. It's, and we used to ban them. Democrats and Republicans agreed we should ban them, and now we're, we're, we have them, and they're causing huge death. But Steve said the right thing. It's like, hey, that's not my call. That's your call. You guys make that decision. I'll carry out the law. Um, he does have the support of a huge number of law enforcement groups. The people that are against him are the gun lobby. And, you know, that actually speaks well. You want that for your ATF director. You don't want the gun lobby to be picking the person that would be enforcing the laws involving what they do. So we'll have to see. They haven't had a confirmed ATF director in a decade, right? Yeah, about that long. And I, I think the post has been unfilled, interim or, or permanent, for seven years. Yeah, shame on Rob Portman for not taking a position on it. He knows Steve Dettelbach. He knows him from when he was U.S. attorney. He knows what he stands for. And to play politics with this is shameful. Good riddance with the goes at the end of the year. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With massacres happening more than once a week in America, what huge change in Ohio gun laws looms in a matter of weeks? Lisa, the timing for this could not be worse. Again, yes, just bad timing. Senate Bill 215 allows Ohioans 21 and over to carry concealed weapon without any license, training, or background check unless state or federal law otherwise prohibits that. This law goes into effect Monday, June 13th. This bill was signed in March by Governor DeWine over the objections of at least one large Ohio police union. Ohio is the 23rd state to pass permitless carry or what second Amendment fanatics call constitutional carry. This bill also says that motorists do not have to inform law enforcement officers they are carrying when they get pulled over for a traffic stop, but they do have to say whether they're carrying if they are asked directly by that law enforcement officer. Yeah, a whole lot of people are pointing at Mike DeWine because he signed this bill despite claiming he wanted to have common sense gun laws. You know, Mike DeWine opines when children get killed, and yet he's the guy that keeps putting his signature on bills that liberalize the gun laws. This is in a couple of weeks. I mean, it's really quite striking that given what happened in Buffalo and given what happened in Texas, that suddenly Ohio is going to be gun central. And, you know, this is this continues a trend. Starting back in 2006, cities and local governments in Ohio were banned from passing their own gun control ordinances. And as you said, there was the Dayton mass shooting in 2019. Uh, DeWine did attempt to pass a modest gun control legislation in the wake of that shooting, including red flag seizures, uh, voluntary background checks, and and hiked penalties for illegal gun sales. But that was, of course, dead on arrival in the legislature. And, of course, his opponent, 
opponent, Nan Whaley, was the mayor of Dayton when that went down. So I'm sure she's going to come out, you know, I don't want to say guns a-blazing, but she's going to come out strong, I think, on this. The, t- the two simplest steps that you could take to really curb what's happened is to ban assault weapons and to impo- impose red flag laws so that people who are mentally ill can't get the guns. And, and if they have them, they get taken away. And we won't do it. Uh, it's, it. You know, we should be every legislator should be championing that. Most of America wants that. There, this isn't a Second Amendment issue for most of America. And yet Mike DeWine signs bill after bill after bill liberalizing gun laws while claiming he wants common sense. It's today in Ohio. Lake Catholic High School and the Catholic Diocese of Cleveland believe they have figured out how a lacrosse player came to to be on the field at Orange High School with a swastika on his calf. They say it was a prank. Laura, how did that happen? Well, I don't really see how a swastika could ever be funny or a prank, but according to this joint statement, a senior player drew a swastika on his own hand then used it as a stamp on his three teammates, including the leg of a sophomore who's was seen in this photo that was taken, and that's kind of the proof that people have used to point to the swastika. He didn't even know it was there. The player who's instigated this incident is required to perform community service before he can receive his graduation transcripts. I believe he's banned from commencement. And the team has to attend a program conducted by the Maltz Museum of Jewish Heritage. And the entire school said that they're going to create steps to... uh, reinforce the universal truth that each person is made in the image of an all good and loving God and deserving of respect and love. And the school went to, I mean, they, they looked into this, they reviewed video, they talked to a bunch of people, they, they did a call out for more witnesses. They couldn't find any evidence that anyone uttered an anti-Semitic slur, which was part of the original complaint. Um, some adult that used coarse and profane language will never be allowed to be affiliated officially with the school anymore. And then the, the student, the sophomore, whose picture has been on our site for a couple of days and all over social media, his family actually put out a statement as well. Well, he wasn't identifiable. He's no. never been identified. But Although the family, I'm sure the school, like if you go to school with him, you know yeah, who they it all is. know. Right. He and on Facebook, he was pilloried. The family statement. Right. You really have to feel sympathy for the family because that their kid is the one that was held out as the the one that did this, and they spoke very, very strongly. The problem with all this, though, is is that the culture of Lake Catholic? I mean, the idea right. of putting a swastika on. The leg of a kid who's playing in a game that has a large Jewish community says something about the culture of that school. It, it, or it's a one-off with one one senior who's an idiot. But it, it seems like some soul-searching needs to happen to make sure there isn't a culture of this in lacrosse. Yeah, completely. And the lacrosse coach has already resigned. I, I, but I agree with you. Like, I don't, I don't know how anybody could think this was funny. And even if you, I mean, I guess the other two, this happened with three students and only the one student didn't know it was on his leg. It was on the arm of the other two students. Um, Why this, people weren't like automatically like, what are you doing? You can't do this and make sure that this, this kid didn't get out on the field. I don't know. But you're right. There has to be some kind of complicit idea that this would be okay, like in somebody's mind to even come up with this prank. Like it's, it's not a prank. Yeah, and but look, I, we go ahead, Lisa. I don't, I don't know if it's hate so much as ignorance in this case, honestly. 
I mean, I, I do think it was a prank. I think it was teenage boys thinking this was funny. And, uh, you know, but there are documented cases of hate. I'm not sure this rises to that, but I think ignorance is almost as bad as hate. And you have a, a good point, Lisa. And, it, and if you are that ignorant, then there needs to be more education. Well, look, we all know kids are dopes. I mean, they do dumb things. That's why you're not held accountable for things you do as a juvenile in adult life. It's the training years of your life. We've all done stupid things as juveniles. But it th- this was so offensive and caused such a stir that you hope it has a lasting impact on anybody in the schools. Uh, but at least, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the one takeaway from all this was that it wasn't an intentional uh, effort by a student to get into the face of the people of Orange that the kid. Well, that had it was this, the senior who did it. I mean, that was intentional. Yeah, he's a yeah right. But it but was it? Uh, but if it's a prank and it's ignorance, was it was it intended to be the anti-Semitic thing or was he just being an idiot? Either way, mm-hmm. they need. But to you, do... you're right. The fact that it was Orange High School and not, you know, my high school, like then. It makes you wonder, like, why a swastika right. and why orange? A, it wasn't any other symbol. I think Lisa said it in a previous discussion. A swastika is never funny. No. It, there's right. no humor in a swastika, no matter what you what you do. So, interesting story. It's on Cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. It seems every Cleveland mayor, and I've seen a lot of them, makes a case to once again make Cleveland the forest city. It's such an easy promise and sure to bring approval from the residents. Courtney, what is Justin Bibb's proposal to make Cleveland once again the forest city? Who who doesn't love trees, right? So, so Mayor Bibb and city council are moving through, you know, a measure that would bring back to life a, a long dormant tree commission. It used to exist in inside City Hall in the 90s, went away in the early 2000s, who knows why. Bibb and Council want to bring that reconstituted commission back. And the goal here is, so you know, yes, everybody likes to talk trees here, right? But um, one thing I think is interesting is Bibb has really talked about getting city departments to better coordinate better talk to each other, not just have everyone going off doing their own function and not thinking holistically. So this tree commission idea that he's pitching is is aimed at kind of that collaboration. So what it, what, what it would do is advise the mayor and council on policies that could help protect the city's tree canopy, help, help grow the canopy. And, you know, those describing this idea say that, that that those policy recommendations would, would really allow the city to see where they should be considering trees, like on street projects, you know, if to avoid maybe cutting down a bunch of healthy, mature trees that provide a whole bunch of benefits for the neighborhood. Maybe there should be people at the table saying, hey, no, probably not a good idea to whip the chainsaw out in this circumstance. So so that 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 coordination of processes within City Hall seems to be what this commission is really focused on looking at and improving. This is one of those th- th- decision trees that I almost wish he wouldn't say anything about until he did it. You know, instead of saying, I'm going to plant trees, do it for a year and come out and say, hey, I've quietly gone about restoring the canopy. We've planted a thousand trees in the past 12 months. We want to plant more. You know, it just seems like such a hollow. We've heard it over and over again. Armin Budish has got you covered that, too, right? He was Mr. Yeah. Tree. 
Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. And he rolled that out when he was getting a bunch of bad press for other really big problems at the county. You know, I will say, like, Bib didn't make any kind of statements about this commission. It's just it's moving through the council process. And that's why I reported it. And what I thought was kind of interesting, I suppose, here, the origination of, of resurrecting this commission. This was a council idea from two years ago. And it kind of died under former Mayor Frank Jackson, according to the council members. And and Bib was willing to pick up the football and and see it through. So so I mean this isn't this isn't necessarily a Bib idea. This this started with council two years ago, and Bib's on board with it. Was was there legislation that abolished the commission? I mean, if the commission existed previously, why do you need legislation to recreate it? Well, they are making some tweaks to its functions. They're changing the number of members, changing its name. You know, they're doing different tweaks there. What I found interesting is no one like who was at the committee table this week knew why the commission stopped operating in the 2000s. So who knows? Was there any talk about coordinating with the county, which has put aside a bunch of money to plant trees? Um, nothing outright, but I, you know, you kind of got the vibe that the commission is going to look at what resources are out in the community. There's nonprofit groups who have like the Cleveland tree coalition it wants to work with. So, I mean, I, I would assume it, part of its function is trying to coordinate funding and initiatives that are existing. I can't believe we haven't heard from Laura on this topic. This is like her favorite story of the day. <laughs> I just, I do. I'm like Courtney said, who doesn't love trees? I just think when you look at everything they can do, it's a really effective, efficient way to improve the quality of life for everyone. And I'm so glad that the city is embracing it because it's easy to say, hey, let's plant trees in the metro parks. But I think in the city itself, like these leafy canopies can do a lot for people's well-being and just reduce heat islands and all sorts of great things and erosion. And I mean, literally, there are not you can't say enough great things about trees. All right. This time next year, Courtney, I'm going to make sure you're on the (laughs) podcast. I'm going to say how many trees have they actually planted? All right. Let's let's check back. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What is the question about bail that will appear on the ballot in November for Ohio voters? And what's the real story behind it? Lisa, there's a large bit of bogosity to this one. Yeah, the the Ohio House and Senate each passed a joint resolution along party lines, um, and they'll have to choose between these resolutions which one will be sent to the Secretary of State for placement on the November ballot. But what it does, it adds to the Ohio Constitution a provision that public safety must be considered when setting the bail amount. That would include prior criminal record, seriousness of the crime being alleged, the likelihood of that defendant returning to court, and and other considerations. Um, Huron Representative D.J. Swearingen, a Republican out of Huron, says this will make Ohio safer. There are many stories of people being released on low bond recommitting crimes. You know, the, but the preposterous part of this is the judges already have that tool. They, Correct. They, it's, it, it is enshrined in the law, but there's some due process involved. They have to hold a hearing to find out. Dave Yost mm-hmm. immediately put out a press release. The guy is so full of himself saying, I think voters will be shocked to know that the judges don't have the ability to do this. That's just not true. He's making that up. They are going to try to scare voters into rushing to the polls to approve this, to drum up more law and order votes, which are Republican votes. 
And it's just not true. They're, they're, they're peddling a fiction to the Ohio voters. We're going to be pounding this all the way through November that this is not true, that what they're telling mm-hmm. you is absolutely not true. Judges have the power to consider public safety and always have and generally have made decisions based on that and that this is a, a bogus thing that they're throwing before the voters. Yeah, in the in the first instance where they can set bail, this happens during the bail hearing. Uh, certain crimes like murder, aggravated vehicular homicide can be denied bail, but that's the first attempt that that bail is set. The second is the Ohio Criminal Rule 46, which says you must release defendants based on the least restrictive conditions that would ensure their presence back in court. And this would include financial and non-financial conditions, but public safety is considered a non-financial condition. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's, it, I mean, it's not going to change anything. It's, this is just the dog whistle to get people to go to the polls, and I'm sure they'll spend money saying, can you believe Ohio doesn't let judges do it? And if they put enough commercials out there, people will believe it even though it's fiction. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What was Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's official response in court to the charge that he improperly stripped away expanded unemployment benefits from uncountable Ohioans during the pandemic? It's going to court, Laura. What's he say? Well, he argued that he's within his authority to hold this federal money. And that's the extra $300 a week. If you remember, originally the federal government was giving an extra 600 a week in unemployment. They knocked that down to 300 a week. But before that program ended nationally, the governor said, we're going to end it here. And the reasoning was people were having trouble hiring. Well, I I don't really think it worked. Mike DeWine, like people are still having trouble (laughs) hiring. But he says that he was allowed. um, The arguments are going back and forth over a 1970s law that requires the governor's administration to accept benefits from five federal programs that include Social Security, which spells out how someone can become eligible for unemployment. And then DeWine's side says the CARES Act is not mentioned in that 1970s law, so that's moot. What's interesting is Mark Dan, the former attorney general, is the one who's uh, the lawyer for the plaintiffs in this case, those are their three Ohioans who were unemployed and lost their benefits when DeWine halted them. Well, regardless of how this goes out in court, the fact that it's playing out in court is going to remind a whole lot of Ohioans that Mike DeWine stripped away money that the federal government wanted to give to you to help you cope with the pandemic. I imagine Nan Whaley will make sure Mm -hmm. voters know about that decision because it seemed awfully venal to take that money away. And it was to force people into hardship so they would work harder to get jobs. So here we are. We've talked for two years about how much anxiety people have and how hard this has been on parents and all these difficulties. And Mike DeWine's response was, I'm going to take money away from you to make your life harder so you look a little bit harder for a job to help out these employers that fortify my campaign account. It's really bad. And the argument uh, from DeWine's side is, or sorry, from the plaintiff's side, is that the legislator should have passed the law withdrawing Ohio, that DeWine didn't have the executive authority to do it. And what's funny is, like, that would have been no problem for this legislature, right? They would have, like, the minute there was extra money, been like, nope, nobody gets it. But uh, 
He didn't yeah. ask the legislature to do it. Also interesting, Pat DeWine recused himself in this case because it involves his dad. Yeah, right. The guy, <laughs> so you'd love to know what his decision tree is. In, out, in, out. It's preposterous that he's still sitting on the gerrymandering case. It's today in Ohio. That does it. We've gone long. Too much to talk about. We didn't get to everything. We'll try and catch up tomorrow. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. Come back Friday. We wrap up the week. We head into Memorial Day. <laughs>